1: This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.
0: Hello. Hello, welcome to another edition of Cheerful Book Club. If you're enjoying this, please remember to subscribe if you're really enjoying it, and only if you're really enjoying it. Please give us uh, five stars and a nice little review if you get time on your podcast app. And I'm really excited by this conversation because it's with Bill McKibben, author of a book called Fulter. Now, Bill McKibben is a veteran and incredible climate activist, it's based in the US, founder of an organisation called 350.org. But you know what 350.org what what the relevance of it is tell me 350 was 350 parts per million which is the level of um co2 emissions that was supposed to stabilize the climate i'm afraid the bad news is we're at i think over 410 parts per million um now but bill mckibben's organization 350.org has done an incredible job particularly around the whole divestment movement so it started in a few american universities divesting from fossil fuels it's now a global movement trillions of dollars and you know his book is i'd say kind of sober um uh but but i don't think he's he's not a non-cheerful person you know he, he has got ideas about how things can be better and uh I found it a really interesting conversation.
1: Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.
0: So I'm delighted to say that we are joined now on Cheerful Book Club by Bill McKibben, who is often described as the US's leading environmentalist. He was the author of a book, End of The End of Nature, in 1989, which was the first sort of mass market book really to warn of the dangers of climate change he is the founder of 350.org he's the father of the divestment movement and the winner of numerous prizes for his work and the author of a new book falter has the human game begun to play itself out bill thank you so much for joining us. well what a pleasure to be with you well it's really it's really good to have you just before we get into the details of your argument, just give us a give our listeners a broad sense about what your argument is, but it 's certainly an arresting subtitle has the human game begun to play itself out
2: right well, thirty years ago, when I started writing about climate change, uh, we were issuing warnings about what would happen if we didn 't do anything we didn 't do anything, so now we 're issuing bulletins about what 's going down. And what we're seeing already, even in the kind of early stages of climate change, is such powerful alteration of the planet uh, that, uh, uh, I mean, it's already the biggest thing that human beings have ever done. And you begin to get some sense of what the future holds. So the discombobulation of what has heretofore in human experience been a stable planet that's the story of our
0: time. Now, we'll get on to the stuff about the very important warnings you have in your book about climate. But what's interesting and maybe surprising about the book is you don't just cover the climate threat to the human game. You cover the threat of individualism, AI, the quest for eternal life. What sort of persuaded you to have such a broad sweep rather than a, simply being, a, if, you might, if you like, a climate book?
2: So, the discussion of artificial intelligence, of human genetic engineering, these feel very much to me the way that climate change did 30 years ago. Threats that one can see emerging on the horizon, uh, but not yet overtaking us. Man, would it be nice to have the discussion <laughs> about these things before, not after yeah. we you know, gone over the waterfall.
0: And that's what made you think, this is a sort of, this is where climate was 30 years ago. So. That's right.
2: And, and these are extraordinarily powerful technologies, and they threaten in dramatic ways what it means to be human, what the role of humans on this planet is.
0: What do you think goes on psychologically? Something I, I once heard said, that if there was a comet slowly approaching the Earth and it was going to hit the Earth. And every day we could see it getting slightly closer, even if it was going to take 30, 40, 50 years. All we would be talking about is what we're going to do about the comet. Why is the psychology of climate change different?
2: Well, climate for a long time was difficult because it was hard for us to picture it. We didn't have that image of the comet drawing closer. Maybe a better example is, uh, say, the comparison with nuclear War. We were able in our imaginations to picture what five or six mushroom clouds over five or six cities would look like, partly because my country produced a couple of those mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so, the human imagination being what it is, we went to work. Not perfectly, but, you know, it's got to be counted as a kind of triumph of of diplomacy of humanity over the last three quarters of a century that we have not dropped another one of these things. It was harder for people to imagine that a billion explosions of a billion pistons inside a billion cylinders every minute of every hour could wreak the same kind of damage but indeed, that's precisely what happens. We think that the carbon we've put into the atmosphere already traps the heat equivalent of about 400,000 Hiroshima-sized explosions a day. That's why we've melted 70% of the summer sea ice in the Arctic. You know, that's why the ocean is 30% more acidic than it was 40 years ago. The the, the only thing that we've ever imagined that could change the world on the same scale as climate change is kind of all out nuclear conflict
0: now i promise the listeners it does get more optimistic because (laughs) the 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 the, you know you sort of warn people at the beginning that it's it's not going to be entirely hopeful book but but there is sort of hope at the end and there is so so people should bear with us but but just on the climate thing um it really follows up jeff's question if you had to persuade somebody here who, um, and, and many of our listeners may be persuaded, but they may want to persuade other people, if you had to persuade them that, you know, this isn't just the weather's going to get a bit warmer, or there's going to be a bit more rain, but that it will sort of directly and potentially existentially affect their lives of their children and grandchildren, what's the sort of And this may seem like an obvious question, but I mean, look, you could, you, you, you could talk about
2: any number of things. You could talk about sea level rise along the world's coastal cities and the fact now that it's clear the defense of those cities is going to be nearly impossible at the levels of sea level rise we're talking about. You could talk about the fact that Food production becomes hard on a planet where we alternate increasingly between flood and drought. You could look at the pictures that have come out in the last, even the last year of what it looks like, even in prosperous parts of the world, to see the sort of fires and try to imagine what kind of world you're living, leaving your kids.
0: (laughs) That's pretty bleak. (laughs) Um, Talk to us about the concept of leverage. Because it's important in your book and you sort of emphasize it and in a way it's a it's a kind of spine throughout it.
2: Yes. One of the
0: things that's been
2: very hard is that um, at precisely the wrong moment, precisely the wrong ideology took over the planet. You know, the 1980s was the decade when scientists were first figuring out about climate change beginning to tell us the peril that we faced. It was also the decade when Ronald Reagan ascendant was announcing that uh, government was not the solution. It was the problem. It was the decade when Margaret Thatcher was announcing that there was no such thing as society, only individual human beings. That libertarian market solve all problems. Greed is good. Ideology was, was puerile and, and and mean-spirited and, and, and all of that. But we've had periods like that before in human history. The problem is that it came at just the wrong moment. In it, relation to climate. In relation to climate change in particular, it meant that over the couple of decades when we would have needed to be taking real action to prevent climate change. We were instead enamored by this idea that somehow markets would automatically solve our problems. What do you know? Markets so far have increased the temperature of the earth one degree centigrade headed towards three degrees centigrade. So it, that that leverage in the power centers of the world, especially the United States, you know, at its absolute height at the end. And oh, this the is Cold a leverage,
0: War, in a way, leverage is for you about the leverage that humans have over the planet in part. So so and and remember you know in the past human
2: mistakes uh, uh which I mean humans make mistakes yeah. it's part of uh, didn't translate into planet scale right. impact even big things you know the roman empire could fall and if you were in china or south america you wouldn't even have known about it sure. you know now you know whatever happens is magnified instantly by the interconnections that we've built i mean we've we've taken the chemistry of the atmosphere and in your lifetime my lifetime we have taken it from a safe level to a profoundly unsafe level that's driving absolutely remarkable geologic scale changes like we haven't seen since the last big asteroid slammed into the planet 70 million years ago. That's
0: leverage. That certainly is leverage. And you talk in the book about this author who will be very familiar to an American audience and probably less familiar to a British audience, and that's Ayn Rand Mm. and her book, which I think called Atlas Shrugged. I mean, I guess I hadn't fully realized until I read your book what an influence that had had on the sort of certainly, the conservative movement in uh, America just tell, talk to us a bit about her and and, and and that book. well, she was the great prophet of libertarian
2: uh, 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 ideology, and her impact on the world was enormous. Her acolytes include not only Donald Trump but uh, Said Atlas, hey, no,
0: Donald Trump has read a book that's,
2: he claims, <laughs> that's asked his favorite book he said that uh, Rand's novel The Fountainhead was his favorite book, that it had everything uh, uh, that you could uh, all you of human TV emotion TV box set um, but um, uh, uh, it may have appealed to him because among other things the sex scenes are in essence right. rape scenes you know right. um, um, it's pretty, I mean it's a pretty sad outlook but your sense that it's only americans i'm afraid who've been influenced i mean yeah. the, the the architects some of the early architects of it's brexit like too had, oh, brexit, brexit. Had, yeah. you know pictures of ayn rand on right. their desks uh right uh uh it's a baleful ideology and every man for himself i mean her single biggest insight was that altruism was a trap, a horror that everybody it should be avoided at all costs. And the only thing you should do is look out for your own interest. And you think that has central relevance to the climate fight? I think it has uh, a- Absolutely. Uh, I mean, look, uh, who was the most powerful man in the world in these decades when we should have been taking on this question? Without any doubt, it was Alan Greenspan, the head of the Fed in America, and basically the guy in charge of the world economy. He, in the 1950s and early 60s, literally sat at the feet of Ayn Rand every Saturday night in her apartment in New York as she read the latest chapters of Atlas Shrugged as she was writing the book. You know, uh, ideas matter. It turns out. And bad ideas really matter. And they really matter now because they can get us in trouble on a whole deeper level than we're used to.
0: And look, part of your argument of the book is about the vested interests in the oil and gas sector, Mm. Um, ExxonMobil, other oil companies. I mean, sometimes we talk about the climate challenge as a sort of technocratic challenge. But from your book and from everything you've written and done, it's about power as well, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, some of us thought incorrectly for some years that we were having an argument about climate change. Really, we were having a fight and it wasn't about data and reason. It was about what fights are always about, money and power. And we now know that story much better. In the 1980s, recent great investigative reporting from the LA Times, from Columbia Journalism School, it's made clear that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change. I mean, this uh, one of the stories I tell in this book, and it's worth repeating over and over and over again. Uh, You know, companies like Exxon, then the biggest company on earth, studied the heck out of climate change, as you would expect. They had Big team of scientists, and their product was carbon. So they were going to understand what was going on. They did. Their scientists produced spot-on, accurate predictions of how fast and how much it would warm. They were believed. Exxon's executives began building every drilling rig the company built to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. What they didn't do was tell the rest of us. Instead, they invested billions in building this architecture of deceit, denial, disinformation – Across the fossil fuel industry, they hired the people who'd been the veterans of the tobacco wars. They even found the PR firms that had smeared Rachel Carson in the 1960s.
0: The author of the book, The Silent Spring.
2: Silent Spring. And and as a result, they were able to stage an entirely phony debate for 30 years about whether or not global warming was real.
0: Having known that it was. A a
2: debate that both sides knew the answer to from the beginning. Just one of them was willing to lie. And that lie becomes the most consequential lie in human history. It costs us the crucial three decades. And of course, its impact continues. I mean, you know, we went to, to sort of sense what effect 30 years of propaganda has. We went in 1988 from uh, a Republican president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, declaring, we will fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect, which was a pretty good line, mm-hmm. and, uh, to you know 2019 when Republican president of the United States declares that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese. I mean, that's a line that – if the guy sitting next to you on the bus was muttering yeah. you'd get up and <laughs> you shift would. seats you, you know? definitely
0: you definitely would and and you know in that context, half of the carbon emissions that have taken place since the industrial revolution have happened in those that thirty year period i mean this is That's sometimes right. people think about this as a historic problem that was caused you know mostly hundreds of years ago it it you know, half of it has been caused. In the last 30 years.
2: That's right. And they've set up the kind of, uh, at the moment, deep momentum that's going to cause that much more emissions to happen
0: in the next 30 years. So let's talk about hope, um, Mm. because this is a big part of the book. You say the two biggest sources of hope are and I really like this way of putting it, solar panels and the nonviolent resistance movement. I think these are the great inventions of the 20th century. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's very good. So let's talk about each. Why are solar panels so revolutionary? And you talk very movingly in the book about some of the trips you've made to Africa and elsewhere and the transformation that's had in people's lives. So you really
2: get a sense of them. I mean, for us, a solar panel or a wind turbine – Mostly replaces power we're already getting. So it doesn't seem quite a, I mean, it's great. We know that it doesn't produce carbon emissions. So we're happy about it, but it's when you get off to places that don't have power. And by the way, there are more human beings living without electricity now than the day that Thomas Edison invented the first light bulb, which tells you something yeah. both about demographics and about equity. Yeah. Uh, when you get off to largely, it's largely Africa, parts of Asia too, where this is true, and you see people who were never going to be served by the grid, for whom fossil fuel might as well never have been discovered, uh, but all of a sudden the price of solar panels fallen so sharply that people are moving in quickly to provide people their first electricity. When you see first power come to a community, I mean, I, I was sitting in a bunch of tribal elders in a village near the equator in Ghana where it was hot all the time, 95 degrees, you know, day in, day out. And they'd installed their first solar microgrid the week before. So we were talking about this and the guy kept handing me, uh, cold bottles of water to drink for which i was grateful but it took me half an hour to figure out why he was so proud to be doing it until the week before there'd never been anything cold in this i mean cold wasn't even really a concept you know and and now it was um once you see that you understand that i mean it's this is we're talking hogwarts scale magic you take a sheet of glass and you point it at the sun and out the back flows cold and light and information and modernity. Um, That's remarkable. On a rational world, our job for the next 30 or 40 years would be to put solar panels everywhere on the planet that we possibly could, making the transition that we have to make. And in the process, and here's one of the things that's hopeful about it, also undercutting some of the inequities that mark our planet at the moment. A great deal of the imbalance of power on this earth comes from the fact that small number of people sit atop the coal and gas and oil that we all need. That's why the Koch brothers had enough money to buy a political party in the United States. That's why anybody on earth pays attention to the Saudi royal family. You know? Um, um, I mean, that kind of inequity will begin to lessen and disappear as we move towards a world that runs on energy available to everyone everywhere. Uh, There'll still be rich people in a sort of solar powered world. There'll be people who make millions of dollars uh, uh, off solar panels, but not on the same scale. Also,
0: there's something isn't there about the fact that the sun is sort of Freely available. The sun comes up in the morning. The
2: sun comes up in the morning. Yeah, and it's free. Why do you think Exxon at all hate it so much? I mean, if your business model for a hundred years has been write me a check every month and I'll give you some energy, the idea that you can put something on your roof. And your energy arrives for free, that's the stupidest business model anyone
0: ever thought of. And in a way, one of the most optimistic things about the last decade is the way that the cost of solar has plummeted yes. and it is you know, the the International Renewable Agency recently announced that it's by next year it will essentially be the cheapest fuel yes. in most parts of the world. Yes. And that is a very significant moment,
2: isn't it? Absolutely. It means that if we wanted to change quickly, we could. Uh, the thing we would have to do is shake off the dead hand of the fossil fuel industry. And that's where this other invention, nonviolent social movements, comes in.
0: Which you discovered early in your career, I think, in the 1980s, yes?
2: Well, I
0: sp- I spent
2: <laughs> too long not discovering the right. in a sense, uh, thinking that we'd just keep writing more books and things. But eventually it dawned on me that we were – We'd won the argument. We were just losing the fight. So we started to build the first big grassroots movements around climate change about 12 or 15 years ago. This is 350.org. 350.org became the first. You
0: should just explain for our listeners what 350 is, but the number meaning. Yes, the
2: number is probably the most important number on the planet. It's what the scientists tell us is the safe amount of carbon measured in parts per million we could have. But we chose it in part because we wanted to organize globally, and we have, uh, you know, over the last decade, we think we've organized about twenty thousand rallies in every country on Earth except North Korea. Um, we've uh, we've started, helped start the fight against fossil fuel infrastructure. We began with this battle against the Keystone Pipeline in the United States, which we've so far kept from being built. But more importantly, people watching in fact big oil get fought to a draw for once have now fought every pipeline and coal mine and frack well on the planet with many of the times we win so that's helping and the other thing that we started you referred to earlier was this divestment campaign that's grown into the largest anti-corporate campaign I mean, we're at, in history we're at $8 trillion dollars now worth of endowments and portfolios.
0: On, on some student campuses yes, in the US? Yes, yes.
2: We, we, I mean, we're still. It mean, is
0: really inspiring.
2: Yeah. We're still not exactly a high powered operation, 350.org, but we've made our mark. More importantly, I think, uh, we've helped with others lay the foundation for this ever growing movement. I mean, for instance, the people who came up with the Green New Deal in the United States. Uh, who persuaded Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to get involved. We're all s- veterans of the campus divestment movement. Having graduated, they now wanted to work on something else. We watch, uh, uh, you know, the rise of Extinction Rebellion in the UK, which has obviously done an immense amount to change people's attitudes here and quickly. We watch maybe most wonderfully the, um, the school strikes spreading out from around the world from Greta Thunberg in Sweden, you know, we've been somewhat successful, but not successful enough. We need movements to be ever larger if we're going to do the thing we have to do, really, which is change the zeitgeist around climate change.
0: One one thing I learned from your book is that and this, this problem is a much was a much more manageable problem, the ozone problem. Mm. But one of the things I hadn't realized was there was a big popular mobilization around mm-hmm. the threat to the ozone layer. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and it, it, there was a big enough one to to uh, make change possible. Um, it required less of a push because it, you know these were chemicals that were on the margins of the so, world's economy, so, not at its center. So. Maybe the best example is what happened in the U.S. We're coming up on its 50th anniversary next spring with the first Earth Day in 1970. Uh, 20 million Americans went in the street that day. So that was one in 10 of the then American population. Amazing. Probably our biggest day of political protest Amazing. ever. And that was enough to shift. I mean, in the next four years... Richard Nixon, who had not an environmental bone in his body, signed every important environmental law: the Clean Air Act, the the Clean Water Act. Came
0: out in the streets about about what
2: Earth Day, just to say we demand an end to pollution. Right, and 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 they got it. Uh, I mean, not only did America adopt those acts, but they became the template for what every other country in the world did to try and rein in its own pollution. So, people power is very effective. Our problem with climate change is that it has to happen very fast. Climate change is the first time-limited problem that humans have come up against, and that makes it hard. We're different. It's different. I mean, Dr. King would say at the end of speeches, he would say, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This may take a while, but we're going to win. The arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. Yeah. And if we don't win soon, we don't win. So that's why there's this. That's why, though. What you know, my real role in the world is to be a writer, and that's what I'm good at. I mean, that's why I've been in in and out of jail for the last decade because there's this urgency around these questions that we
0: simply have to get to. And you think it can. You think the examples that you've cited, including Extinction Rebellion, the pupil strike, it can move things. It can change things. Yeah, it can't stop global warming. That's
2: not any longer on the menu. We've waited too long. It may be able to stop a short of change on the scale that cuts civilizations off at the knees it's an open question whether we can still do that there are scientists who think we've waited too long it's not a good sign that 70% of the sea ice in the arctic is gone you know um um but that's our chance at this point and and so we must take it it's clearly the challenge of our lifetime in the way that fighting fascism in Europe was the challenge of our parents' or grandparents' generation, and we've got to take it with the same seriousness. We don't have to die or kill this time in order to fend off this challenge, but we've got to get outside our comfort zone because the planet is miles outside its comfort
0: zone. So you obviously have worked on this for your whole career. That um, There's reasons, as you said at the beginning of your book, to feel... Uh, sort of quite um, gloomy in a way. I guess my final question is sort of give us a reason to be cheerful about this issue. There's a
2: big movement that encompasses lots of people all over the planet. This is the most planetary movement we've ever seen. And so much of that movement comes from places and people in places that did nothing to cause the problem because they don't burn any fossil fuel. If people in those places are willing to work with us, if they're willing in Bangladesh and the Marshall Islands and wherever else to get up in the morning and try to do something about this, then the rest of us can as well. And in those movements, there is a real beauty. These are the these the planets running a fever, and these are the antibodies that are mobilizing to try and fight that fever. That's who we need to be right now. Now, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to come out okay. I mean, sometimes people get fevers and the antibodies mobilize and the people still die. You know, that can happen. But it's clearly our job uh, uh, to do it, to try it. And if we do, the best science indicates we've got a narrow window, albeit one that's closing, to stand up, to make a difference. This is one of these classic human fights of the small and the many against the mighty and the few. This is the Rebel Alliance against the Death Star that is the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, and we don't know how it's going to come out, which makes it exciting, dramatic, and scary. Uh, and winnable? It's, depending on how you define winning. winning, it's, it's winnable. But it's only winnable if we do it now. Uh, it would have been, I mean, one of the things I have to restrain myself from saying is, oh, if only you'd listen to me then, because 30 years ago, it was easily winnable. When you waste 30 years, then it becomes really hard. So, let's don't waste anymore.
0: Okay. Bill McKibben, thank you. I think it's very, very wise to listen to you. Um I really enjoyed your book, and uh I really have huge respect for what you are doing. Well, for thank you us. guys both very much. What a good thing you've got going here.
1: Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly. Think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.